Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. The books and sonnets of the Romantic era are filled with stories of travelers, men who explore nature and in the process uncover truths about themselves. But this is not the story for women travelers. Their journeys and discoveries are very different. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Ingrid Horrocks talks about the way women travelers are represented in late 18th century literature, particularly in the work of women writers. Horrocks is an associate professor in the School of English and Media Studies at Messe University in Wellington, New Zealand. She's the author of Women, Wanderers, and the Writing of Mobility, 1784 to 1814. Ingrid Horrocks, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for the invitation. So this is a terribly unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What, what is the Romantic movement, and is there a particularly special place that you think travel has within it? Ah, oh, that is a bad question. <laughs> um, okay, okay. So let's start first with the period that it's associated sure. with. So usually we think of the Romantic period as going from the late 18th century into the early 19th century in British literature. Um, and extending further into the 19th century, particularly in the Germanic tradition. But the, the British um, literature is what I know most about. Some key things we associated with the Romantic um, period is a kind of centralization of the exploration of the human subject. Mm. So the quintessential literary figure at the center of this is probably William Wordsworth. Um, so an exploration of the human subject and also often in relation to nature. So we suddenly get all this poetry and all this literature of people moving through the landscape, engaging with nature, and often imagine the self through an engagement with nature. In terms of travel, one of the things that's most associated with it is the Grand Tour. Mm. So that's the young aristocrats going off to the continent, looking at some art, and then coming back. Once we get to the Romantic period, we get mountain climbing for a start. Um, you get a sort of different kind of movement. You get the early guidebooks. Mm. In fact, Wordsworth wrote one of the first guidebooks to the lakes. So that's very 
tourism is very closely associated with the Romantic period and this idea of travel as a vehicle of self-discovery. Yeah, I was thinking about that famous painting um, by, is it Caspar David Friedrich, uh, Wanderer Above a Sea of Fog, yes. which I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That is, that is the image that I use when I start a course on Romanticism, this figure of the man up on a mountain looking down across the world. So he's both kind of viewing the landscape and and viewing the world from on high. But there's also this idea that in viewing the landscape, he is also exploring his own consciousness. So there's a kind of relationship between the land that is viewed and the human consciousness. But it's also a very empowered image, that Casper image. So he's up on a prospect and he's looking down on things and he looks pretty in control of the situation. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is you talk about the importance of the sentimental journey as a kind of romantic trope. I was wondering if you could give an example of that. Yes, good question. So this, the main text actually called The Sentimental Journey is by Lawrence Stern. And it's a very strange piece of travel writing. It's both fiction and nonfiction, and it's very fragmented. But the structure of it is that he kind of can't move forward. He gets stuck in his carriage, and you get these whole chapters of him in the carriage. So rather than a big journey outwards, you get these kind of small fragmentary interactions. So there's an interaction with the maid, and and there's a feeling for other people that he meets along the journey. So the journey became an exploration of what it meant for to feel for those one met along the way. So it's an exploration of sympathy. Now, in um, The Sentimental Journey, the imagined traveller tends to be a man with means and he tends to encounter those he can feel for and he does displays of emotion. And quite often these figures are women. And in the case of Lawrence Stern, it's a woman called Mad Maria or Maria of Malones. And she is weeping and he watches her weep and he feels for her weeping. And this is a very standard scene in the literature of the 18th century. The man feeling for someone, often a woman, and we're kind of watching the display of emotion. So this is how he forms himself. Now, what I'm really interested in is those women. And Maria, Mad Maria in um, Cern is actually a traveller and she has walked all over Europe barefoot, but we don't hear her story. So what I'm really interested in is actually this counter tradition that's also happening within Romanticism, where there are a whole lot of women wanderers that have been written about whose stories are actually being excavated. So in the Stern version, it's a little tiny scene. And the main person is this man feeling for the wandering woman. There are also a whole lot of countertexts that we know less about, but by people like Mary Wollstonecraft and Frances Burney and Charlotte Smith, where they put these wandering women at the centre of their texts. And they kind of ask, oh, so what does that feel like? Particularly if you can't direct the movements of your own journey. You uh, make this distinction in your book between travel as it's, been conceived of in the Enlightenment and and then this early Romantic period, and wandering. And I was wondering if you could talk a little about the difference between those two. Certainly. Yeah, so wandering doesn't assume any kind of destination or homecoming, and it works by detour and digression, which can make it very liberating 
and a kind of wonderful experience if you're, say, for example, walking around the, the Lake District. But it also makes it a very vulnerable situation. So there's much more of a sense in which one can get lost when you're wandering. And what's really interesting about this period is that you can see understandings of travel and wandering changing. So in Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of 1755, he says that to travel should more rightly now be understood as to journey as opposed to to labour or being associated with its older roots in travail, which means suffering or misery. At this point in the um, mid-18th century, wandering at least with Johnson, is still very much associated with pain and with struggle. And what happens is across this period, by the end of the Romantic period, wandering is the activity par excellence of lot, uh, much Romantic writing. And what a lot of the women writers are doing is still dwelling in that place of difficulty and suffering and wandering and saying, what does it mean to be unhoused? Yeah, I found this so interesting because um, about a month ago, I had uh, Shane Legassi on the podcast who wrote about the uh, medieval invention of travel. And one of his points was also to point out that the word travel and the word travail have a kind of common common link. And certainly within uh, the medieval imagination, those, those two concepts were connected as two. Travel was often quite difficult. Maybe local travel was seen as ordinary and necessary, but long, certainly longer distance travel was seen as quite dangerous and frightening, and that that begins to change a bit as well. And I found it so interesting in your book that by looking at the gender differences between characters, your women wanderers are actually in these very precarious, dangerous situations. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as as travelers being associated with freedom, if you look then about these women travelers, they sort of say, well, actually that freedom, that freedom can be very scary. And for us, maybe it's not so much freedom. So if we think about the example of Charlotte Smith, who is has been the subject of a lot of um, scholarly attention in the last two decades. So she's a contemporary of Wordsworth, a slightly older contemporary, and is now recognised in some ways as kind of the great missing romantic poet. And she wrote her first book of poetry when she was 25, and she was confined to debtor's prison with her husband and her nine living children. Wow. And obviously, the obvious way to make any money was to write a book of poetry, um, <laughs> which just gives you a sense of the lack of lack of options for women. And quite soon after that, she made the very unconventional step to leave her husband, who was abusive, and um, and spent all their money constantly. And the scholar Elizabeth Dolan has done this fantastic online map where you can see her movements, see mm. Charlotte Smith's movements. So she moved 28 times in 19 years. Oh my and God. generally, they weren't of her own choice. And generally, she's got all the kids at home. So they're all growing up, but she's got nine nine children with her some some of them died and that's she's just moving around southern england so these are not even great journeys this is just someone who is constantly on the move sometimes she quite literally is um she's running out of firewood because and she can't heat her house in winter so unsurprisingly you get someone who's writing quite fascinatingly about the difficulty of constant movement and what it means when your life becomes 
wandering as opposed to travel as this nice little adventure within your life that you have a home, you go out and you come back. For someone like Charlotte Smith, it's actually, is, this is her life. She, she is unhoused. She isn't quite homeless, but she is constantly on the move. So in her writing, she figures the, these women who, who have to move. And then she also turns it outwards. She's got a fantastic long poem called The Immigrants, which is about the refugees from the French Revolution who were coming in boats in a very, very cold winter in 1792 after the terror in the French Revolution. So she kind of writes about what it feels like and what it means to be on the move when you don't have any choice. You just mentioned the French Revolution. I was really interested in this point you make which is these are not just you know people sitting on a mountaintop writing sonnets and novels. They're they're watching the streets in the 1790s fill up with exiles, and you go through a number of these big dislocations that happen in the 1790s, and how how many people there were who were wandering and destitute. Uh, what was going on besides the French Revolution? Yeah, well, the French Revolution is causing a lot of that. So there's a lot of discharged soldiers on the landscape and then families who have lost people. So they're suddenly destitute. There's actually also a famine, um, a real corn shortage around the the mid-1790s. And there's a lot of debate about what caused that. And there's, there's also just a lot of urban movement. So there's enclosure is going on in the, in the 18th century, which means that some of the what were public lands in which people in small towns would be using and they would be earning their livelihood from that there's a lot of enclosure and that's becoming private land owned owned by the large landholders and then people are no longer have a livelihood or anywhere to leave so there's a kind of urban drift going on so just a lot of changes in in how people were living their lives there's changes in the poor laws. There's also changes in, um, they bring also bringing in new laws to deal with refugees. Some of the first, the Aliens Act, some of the, one of the first laws to think about what we get, what they're going to do about refugees was brought in in the 1790s and it was particularly brutal. Yes, we imagine these writers just kind of floating around in the landscape, but actually they're, they're watching great upheavals. And even someone like Wordsworth, who he went to the French Revolution, he went to Paris, and then he came back to the Lake District. But he's also watching great poverty around him, and he does write about it in really interesting ways. Hmm. There was a kind of interesting flip that you make in writing about these romantic travel stories and especially the sentimental journey where it seems like this idea of sympathy the traveler who usually a male traveler who goes to a new place and who views various people or very has various experiences and then it becomes a vehicle for the reader to sympathize with this foreign other person and then you say but simultaneously it makes us really sympathize with the guy uh, for being that having that capacious heart, I guess, to see the world so sympathetically. And that the women that you describe are not are not like that. These women wanderers are far more troubled and difficult to access. And you say this is very important. I was wondering if you could talk about why you think it's important. Yeah. I think Mary Wollstonecraft really is the most interesting thinker in this space. So she wrote The Rights of um, Men in response to the French Revolution and then The Rights of Women because obviously she realised there was something missing here. And 
both these texts are, I mean, they're very important early feminist texts and part of why they're, how they're structured is thinking through the problems with sympathy and the problems with sympathy as imagine as someone having power and sympathising with some people who are disempowered and making that a kind of lovely sentimental exchange that doesn't think about the social causes of suffering. So Wollstonecraft, when she becomes a traveller, which she partly does to reach a wider audience, both what she looks at and how she looks at it is quite different. So she's very interested in the social causes of suffering. So when she um, talks about someone who's a nursemaid, she's thinking not only about this lovely girl singing a song, but why it is that this woman has no money and can't look after her own child and have to look, has to look after someone else's child. Mm. But then fascinatingly... And Wollstonecraft is traveling with a young child yes. too, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's the fascinating thing. So Wollstonecraft traveled from, um, from London to Scandinavia with her one-year-old baby. And she left her behind at, some, at one point um, and went further on. But she is fully conscious all the time of being a mother. And she's also an abandoned woman in some ways. So she had a relationship in Paris during the revolution and she didn't get married because they didn't need that. They were The world was changing. And then she found herself in quite a conventional narrative of the man leaving her with the baby and with no way to, to financially support herself. So she's off on this journey. And so when she engages with suffering, she is very, very vulnerable herself. And at some point she says that she she sees some people who have been the victims of a fire in Copenhagen. And she, she talks about how actually seeing their suffering and seeing their houseless heads, um, she's quoting Leah there, is too much for her. And that actually mm. there's no way to to do that act of sympathy because she she doesn't she just feels like them and she actually retreats at this point so it's actually a kind of failure of sympathy here in other words it's almost too raw for her to process from a distance yeah 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 so and it's, it's also a refusal on her part to do something kind of neat yeah and say oh we see these people and now they're suffering and now I'm a nice traveler and then I move on to my next next destination She's she kind of has the um, travel narrative collapse in on her. Um, the other person who's really interesting in the space is Frances Burney, the sentimental novelist, and her last great novel, very strange novel, is called The Wanderer or Female Difficulties, and she she puts her her wanderer on a very very conventional tourist route around southern Britain. She's actually an immigre from, from France. But she takes us to all these places and she sort of shows how a traveller who is troubled can't necessarily engage in sympathy hmm. or in aesthetic expression. So she goes to Salisbury Cathedral and she she is actually kind of being chased. She's on the move. And it, she has this moment of kind of opening up and an experience of the sublime and then it shuts down, and it's shut down by fear. She also has her go and observe landscape. She has a little prospect view. So this is this is the woman wanderer's version of the Casper painting. But instead of being left alone on that hilltop, Bernie has this, this, so the woman looks out across the view, and then suddenly she's actually approached by these two men who start talking about her, and she actually has to run away. So there's this sense, a very physical sense, so that, mm. that there's a 
real privilege associated with being able to move through the landscape and observe something and then move on and potentially something callous about it. Wollstonecraft would say that Stern gives Mad Maria his tears and a small coin, but nothing else really. Mm-hmm. And that actually we need to do more in how we engage. You know, when I was reading this, it reminded me of an interview that and it's actually really an oral history I did recently with Ruth Gruenthal, who's a psycho psychoanalyst in New York and uh, 95 years old, still practicing. She's um, She'll probably be on the podcast either before or after this episode, but she, I was very interested in her story of essentially escaping the Nazis in um, first from Germany and then from France in uh, 1940, 1941. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I think so often for people who study history of travel or history of exploration, there is this kind of attachment to the traditional romantic sublime, that broad, that broad view that you describe. And how her experience of travel was anything but that, that it was uh, the travel of exile and of fear. And when I asked her the question, you know, how did you do this? How did you travel so many miles? She said, I just focused on the next thing in front of me. And it was, it was just interesting listening to you talk because this idea of this perspective that actually narrows down, it's not this broad, expansive landscape, I guess, that we sometimes associate with romanticism. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what's so fascinating about this tradition of the women wanderer is that you see the romantic tradition being unpicked even in the moment that it's been made. Hmm. And you kind of see what, what privilege it rests on. The other interesting thing in the Bernie is that in order to survive, she has to pretend to be a conventional traveler. So she has to pretend that she knows where she's going because people don't necessarily respond kindly to those who seem to not have any money or not have a home. So Mm. not only do these people not have access to, to that kind of wide view or the sublime, but, but in some ways they can, that yeah, society around them can be kind of punishing them potentially for that fact that they don't have a place and they don't have an, a clear destination where they're moving on to. The romantic figures like the wanderer in the sea of, above the sea of fog and, and others, these other male figures, it's, it's almost like they become such big agents in, in their own story, even though I guess the romantic movement is also about the bigness or sublimity of nature, but it seems like these are individuals who act with a great deal of agency. And yet um, some of the people, some of the travelers that you talk about, I'm thinking about Anne Radcliffe, for example, her women wanderers are actually quite reluctant. They, they almost seem like they're coerced into travel. It, it seems like you're flipping this, this idea that we associate so much with uh, romanticism. Yeah, absolutely. And reluctant wanderers for me is kind of my, my key term. I think I think what's very interesting is that we actually have to shift our lens and have a mm. different sense of what we consider to be not necessarily travel but mobility or wandering. So Radcliffe obviously so she's a gothic writer, so all her heroines they tend to be abducted or or kidnapped or taken by some terrible guardian across Europe to a to a castle. And it took me a long time to think, oh hang on, they're travelers. Or they are people on the move, and their movement is interesting. So it takes a kind of – we've been so 
um, conditioned, I think, by that great grand narrative associated with romanticism of the person going out on the great journey or the exploration or the gentle wander in the afternoon to think that that's what movement is. And I think um, actually in the field of mobility studies, which is now across a lot of disciplines and very interesting, it's sort of we've been helped to see how mobility works on a number of levels and a number of scales and that choice and agency is not the primary or only way in which we can imagine what is movement and what is a journey that we might actually pay attention to. I mean, for me, I'm not a literature scholar. So for me, a lot of it was quite surprising, like, oh, wow, this is actually happening at the same time. These are characters within this broad narrative, and I never saw it. They, these were invisible characters to me. Something about that is really, really quite new. And, and at the same time, it kind of makes me think about, well, it actually makes me think a little bit about Joseph Campbell, who, uh, you know, w- would do all of this comparative mythology and talk about the, the, let's say, the hero's journey, these kind of structures of storytelling that go way, way back to, you know, Odysseus and, and Enkidu and uh, all this stuff, and how often these early travelers were quite reluctant. They were pushed into something. They were forced into something they didn't want to do. And um, it made me think about what you were saying about travel and travail. Is there a way in which you think the women, I guess my question is this, is there a way in which you think the women who are expressed in these stories and sonnets are hearkening back to an earlier structure of storytelling that's been forgotten? Yes. I think the short answer to that is yes. I think it sounds counterintuitive because the hero's journey is so associated with with the man on the move. So Odysseus Mm. is traveling and Penelope is at home. Yeah, right, right, right. So in a way, they've taken Penelope and taken her outside the home and um, and then structured, yeah, a journey around the kind of – very wandering movement that Odysseus has. <laughs> it's a, I know that he's coming home, but really the important thing is the the things that happen along the way. Yes, they are, they're quite strange books that I write about, about these women wanderers. And part of what's strange about them is that they don't have very clear narrative structures. So they don't have they don't have a kind of arc and they don't have this kind of clear journey which would structure things. And that actually unpicks things a bit so that we have these wandering texts where sometimes they just stop, sometimes they kind of collapse in on themselves. With Wollstonecraft, it's quite a direct refusal to perform a nice narrative for us because her life is not nice. So yeah, yeah, I think that there's a kind of wandering storytelling and a and a kind of reluctance about movement that these texts still hold on to before travel gets associated in literature quite so closely with this idea of movement as freedom. Yeah. So travel is so there's so many different ways to travel now and travel is in many ways quite accessible to men and women, certainly men and women of a certain class. And I was wondering if you follow any of the, or if you have any observations about travel today, or I guess my question is, do you feel that 
travel in general or women's travel in particular follow some of these older tropes? Or do you think we're in a very different place uh, in the way we think about travel today? Okay, such a, such a good question. I do think some of the certainly some of the writing about movement still follows these tropes. So someone like um, Rob McFarlane, who I'm a a great admirer of, the British nature writer, he seems to me to be a direct descendant of Wordsworth and the kind of wandering through the landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's even some photos you can find where he looks exactly like the Casper painting, (laughs) kind of looking down from the mountaintop. Um, And I still do think that um, at least men's travel writing is still kind of the dominant discourse. Yeah. Um, I've I've come across a course on travel writing that didn't have any women, so I still think we quite often think of the men going going out as being the main travel writers at least. But I think that that's I think that's a problem with writing about travel, and I think that. One of the things I think is really interesting now is that there's a lot of family travel. Mm. So we still think, seem to think of the traveler as, as a kind of individual person who goes out or a kind of team that goes out. But I think it's very interesting to think about how there are families on the move now. I think it's it's a really hard question because we're talking about access to travel, but also we're yes, in yeah. another pe- unprecedented moment of global upheaval. So I think some of our writing is still caught in the romantic moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, that we also often think about the, oh, what what's interesting travel? Oh, it's when you go on a big journey somewhere. Whereas actually, I think of the quotidian of the everyday movements of people's lives are often at least, at least as interesting. Women have, really do have access to travel now. Women of a particular class it still feels different to me. I'm also a travel writer. There's still things that feel I feel vulnerable doing that I might not feel vulnerable doing if I if I was a man. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that changes with age as well. I'm now in my 40s, and I have to say that traveling alone in my 40s as a woman is much more pleasant than traveling alone in my early 20s as a woman. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. get left alone. <laughs> Usually, it's good. <laughs> Ingrid Horks, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Pleasure. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week. Thank you.